Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game and maybe asking you for money if we're still indoors by September. I'm Kevin Day in an increasingly rural Norbury and a long way away, 55-odd miles, odd, odd, odd even, whatever. Uh, I'm joined by the next Chancellor of the Exchequer, football finance expert <laughs> and lecturer at Liverpool University, uh, Kieran Maguire. Hello, Kieran, how are you? I'm very good, thank you, Kevin. Good. That's a, a lovely, for the benefit of listeners, Kieran is wearing a rather garish pink shirt today. It's very nice. Well, you, you can take the boy out of Brighton, but... <laughs> now, coming up on today's show, uh, which is Thursday, isn't it? Is it? It is Thursday, Kieran, isn't it? Yes. It's so very difficult to tell at the moment, isn't it? Uh, it's Thursday. So coming up on today's show, uh, the latest on the Newcastle takeover, um, more shenanigans in Scotland, I'm afraid, uh, and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's controversial... Uh, post-apocalypse transfer prediction. Um, very controversial for a little fellow. But first, Kieran, um, uh, this is big news. The EFL and the PFA have proposed that clubs defer up to 25% of players' wages in April. Now, does defer imply later payment or no payment? Uh, later payment. Presumably, when clubs start to generate income again, the players will get the, the remainder of the pay packet. Um, we, we certainly saw in respect of Leeds when they negotiated with um, their owners that they would take a, a effectively late payment for pay um, for their wages, but that would be uh, supported slightly by um, effectively an interest payment on the money that they weren't receiving um, on the due date in respect of perhaps their March or April pay packets. So would this involve a separate contract or a contractual amendment? Would it involve a date whereby they would be told that this is over and we can pay you from normally from now on? I, I think it, they would try to keep it as vague as possible at present because there's no indication as to when football is likely to return. Mm. Um, clearly, we, we can't have football players being given precedence in terms of being tested for COVID-19 when we're not testing everybody who's on the front line of the health service. We're, we're testing Michael Gove's daughter, though. Oh, oh well, I'm, I'm delighted. Is she, is she frontline health? Uh, no, she's Michael Gove's daughter. I think that was the uh, oh, okay. link. I right, think yeah. that was the link there. I think that's why she got the test, so Michael could go jogging with the rest of us. Excellent news. Well, I hope he enjoys his uh, his jog. So, in in respect of the um, proposals, is that it would be twenty five percent of pay would be paid at a later date, but that would only apply to those players who are on more than two and a half grand a week. And if the 25% took you to uh, below two and a half grand a week, it, it, you'd effectively have a, uh, have a, a flaw at that level. So it'll, be, it'll involve, involve an algorithm, and we like algorithms, as, as we both know. Um, uh, but there, there mm. is some aim for some protection for players. So two and a half grand a week is, uh, yeah, that's 130 grand a year um, in terms of sort of the gross pay of players. Um, I think it really is important to get it sorted before the April pay packets have been um, organised because if you take a look at the, the wage bill in the championship, um, that's going to come to around about £60 million gross in April and, and clubs have got no money coming in. So w would this be voluntary in that clubs could volunteer to opt in or out and if a club decides to do it, could a player then decide to opt in or out? 
Well, it, it does appear to be very woolly uh, in, in terms of that the PFA and the EFL have come to this agreement, but it does appear to be voluntary. I think you've got clubs such as Stoke City, who are effectively owned by Bet365, um, and as far as they're concerned, they're in a position to carry on paying the full level of wages, so therefore they don't want to buy into this deferral scheme. Um, at the other end of the scale, clearly you've got clubs in League 1 and 2 who have already started to adopt the furlough scheme, which will cause complications there as well. Um, in terms of an individual player basis, I think what is tends to be uh, happening is that the PFA have asked their reps to speak to the dressing room to try to get um, an, an overall approach taken by individual squads, because I think if uh, individual players tried to opt out, that would cause a lot of disharmony within clubs themselves. Mm. Uh, I apologise if I... Uh sounded like I was shouting when I asked that question. A cousin of mine who listens to the pod, Kieran, pointed out the other day that I'm a little bit like my granny, that because you're far away, I think I have to raise my voice, like she used to do when she phoned, when she phoned somebody in Australia. She used to say, I'm trying to stop that. Now, um, you've been speaking, I know, to uh, Gary Sweet, the chief executive of Luton, and, and also Mark Palios, the chief executive of Tranmere, has, has joined Gary Sweet in saying this starting to warn that we're heading for a situation where clubs could be going under unless something is sorted out. And and I presume by that they mean the deferment of payments, do they? Um, yes, I think I think certainly uh, they want something to happen in terms of wages. Mark Palios has said that he thinks that the number of clubs that could go insolvent could reach double figures by, by the end of the year. Um, now, Clubs going in insolvent doesn't mean that they're going to cease to exist. It could mean that they're going into administration. The purpose of administration is to try to protect the business um, in, in terms of its ability to ultimately continue in some form of existence. At the same time, going into insolvency is, is, not, is not good because there's the costs of running it and there's no guarantee that the club going into insolvency will come out the other side. Um, Mark Palios is, is a very smart guy. Um, he used to be head of the FA. He also has run an insolvency practice himself um, for PricewaterhouseCoopers, who's, who are one of the, you know, the four big boys in the world of accounting. Um, so, he's, so he's a smart cookie. He knows what he's talking about. Um, I, I don't think this is scaremongering. And, and exactly the same in respect of Gary Sweet. And I did have a, a brief conversation with Gary last week. Uh, we're hoping to get him to come in on the show. Uh, he is very busy at present, as I'm sure you can imagine. So uh, we'll just try to wait for things to quieten down for him um in terms of uh the 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 upsides um if clubs do go into administration then they can survive they're effectively put into a, a further form of hibernation um the efl does have automatic penalties for clubs that go into administration but it's up to the club owners to decide whether rules need to be applied strictly or whether there is some form of mitigation um, as as we go through the pandemic um looking at uh, comments which have come out of the bundesliga um over the past 48 hours and remember the the uh, the level of infection and the number of deaths in germany is significantly lower than that of the uk mm. they're not expecting uh, they're not expecting matches to take place in front of, uh, of in front of spectators um, until next year. Next year, okay. Well, because at one stage there was talk of, of June the second for Germany, wasn't there? Um, 
Talking of administration, which again does make it look like we planned this beforehand and I can reassure people we haven't, although why, why I'm so anxious for people not to think this is planned, I don't know, Kieran, but this is not planned. Um, the Daily Mail in particular have been reporting, um, which makes me think that it's it's not necessarily true, and that's not a slur against the Daily Mail, it's just that they keep talking about it, it, it because and they seem to be the only people that are, but suggesting that championship teams could go into group administration now this is something of course you know about because you've been an administrator um i've i've been seeing it twice close up at palace and then it's it's not pretty i mean it 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 will it can save you and, and surely the efl will relax their penalties in the, in the situation but all i remember about administration is of course they look to make as many savings as possible and quite often that's non-playing staff and i remember uh, steve copper wanted to pick dean austin for a particular game against norwich away and the administrator said no because Dean Austin had a £4,000 appearance fee in his contract and eventually Dean Austin said he would waive it because we had so few players. Um, so it's not a happy experience, but if if it's the only way out, then you'll have to settle for it. But the idea of group administration, Kieran, is that something that's that's common? Would it work? Do you think it's likely? Um, it's very uncommon. Um, I, I did speak to um, an insolvency specialist uh, just to run it past him. Because remember, I've, I've been teaching for more than 30 mm. years now, so I'm very much out of the loop. Um, he he went through it, and, and he thinks it's A, legal, and B, feasible, but um, individual clubs might feel uncomfortable about uh, getting involved in it because um, if you take... A, yeah, I've given you the example of Stoke. There are other clubs in the in the championship which uh, effectively do run uh, with the with the support of the owners and, and therefore they they are in a position to be able to pay all of their creditors mm. as they fall due so therefore you can see it from the perspective of those clubs why get the the costs involved in administration but also and I think we're probably going to come back to this when we talk about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's comments um there are clubs that think that because they are in a stronger financial position, why shouldn't they take advantage of that mm. uh, in, in terms of the, the summer transfer market, in terms of recruitment um, and, and things of that nature? Um, many clubs were already in a very precarious financial position pre-COVID-19 and to mm. a certain extent, a, a group administration, which effectively is zeroing out all of your existing debts, um, is a get-out-of-jail-free card for those clubs, mm. whereas other clubs who are committed to paying their creditors will feel less happy about that i met the administrator um in 2010 when palace were going for it the last time um and it's, it's very interesting to talk to him because of course he, he was a football fan but he's not a palace fan but the one thing i took from his conversations was that every administration is unique he said every every administration has different circumstances whether it's a a, a business a football club so i that's why it seems odd to me that this idea of group administration with some clubs that aren't anywhere near needing it would seem strange. And it seems to me that whoever's doing the administrating, for a start, the clubs might not agree on the particular company that's chosen to to put them in. And so, I mean, he said it was difficult enough to cope with one football club and all the pressures you're getting, not just from fans, but from, from you know, relatives of staff that have been laid off and, and you know, the knock-on effect that has on other businesses. So, the fact is that trying to juggle 24 of those seems to me almost impossible. 
I, I think uh, almost impossible if the, if the intention was to to trade the clubs. However, there is something called a pre-pack administration, which effectively, um, let's say that you go into administration at 10 o'clock in the morning and at 10.01, the club is sold to normally the previous owners um, in a deal which has been agreed. So therefore, the, the problems which the administrators of Palace had won't necessarily come to the fore. Um, but what it does do is it gets the creditors' backs off the club itself. Um, but it doesn't get football creditors uh, dealt with. So in terms of outstanding transfer fees and in terms of money which is due to players, those figures would still be due. If we take a look at the, the state of the championship, you know, we, we've said on more than one occasion, um, on average, the clubs are paying £107 in wages for every £100 of money coming in. Um, and, and that's during a season when we've got football matches taking place in front of an audience. Well, that income is going to be lower. The wages, as we've established, are going to be different deferred rather than reduced so I still think that this nuclear option has has its faults because all that's going to happen is that you, your regular Joe creditors are going to be stiffed and the football creditors are still going to be paid in full um, um, yeah, I, there's, there's not going to be no winners here um, apart from one or two club owners are going to have to go and pay less money to, to people that they've been trading with um, and effectively just playing this game of casino football for the past few years keeping their fingers crossed um, for the benefit of this regular Joe and I'm sure many other people out there who don't share your football knowledge could you just explain that again you can go into administration at 10 o'clock and come out of the administration at 10.01 and that's pre-arranged and that has what benefit for the club well when you go into um, administration all of your creditors are frozen and and in theory they are then paid out of the the proceeds of the administration itself Right. So if you agree to sell the club back to the owners, it will normally be at an amount of money which would not allow you to pay all of the creditors in full. So on the back of that, they're going to lose out. Now, under football regulations, all football creditors have to be paid in full in terms of my understanding, in terms of transfer fees and outstanding wages. So therefore, other clubs wouldn't lose out. The players wouldn't lose out. But if you've been supplying pies to a, a club, then you could end up getting you know, one or two pence in the pound. If you're if you're the coach driver, if you know, providing transport services and, and all of the other um, providers of goods and services to clubs, they, they could potentially suffer significantly. And let's face it, everybody in the economy is is suffering. Uh, you know, this this talk yesterday by the Chancellor of a of a thirty five percent reduction in the UK economy. We're we're effectively talking about unemployment of three and a half to four million before the end of the year. Well there are some fans at the moment who are um edging towards happier uh, and they're Newcastle fans uh, because uh, a, a, a buyer seems to have been, well, certainly been talked of, and it seems that a move is becoming more and more feasible, a sell-off. Yes. I mean, Mike Ashley, in theory, has been trying to sell Newcastle for at least 12 years. So um, I think we always have to uh, deal with uh, Mike Ashley and the sale of the club with a degree of caution. However, um, there have been a series of documents which have been lodged at Company's House one of which is a document between a company called St. James's Holdings, which is the company which owns Newcastle United, and another company called PCP Partners, which is a company owned by 
Amanda Staveley. Now, for people who aren't familiar, Amanda Staveley is uh, a sort of a, an, an intermediary, effectively an agent. Mm. But instead of trying to sell players, she's trying to sell football clubs. And um, what this particular document does, and it, and it is very, very strange, it's um, St. James's Holding is lending Amanda Staveley money, presumably to help her buy Newcastle United. Oh. Now, that seems counterintuitive doesn't it? Yeah, it it does yes so the way that this is going to work as follows um you have to go back and I've, I've been through going back into court documents going back to 2016 um amanda staveley also introduced barclays bank to uh, the qatari investment funds in 2007 remember the last recession uh, and the last recession wasn't caused by a pandemic it wasn't caused by footballers wages it was caused by the banking industry doing crazy things Mm -hmm. um barclays was in a very precarious position um it could have gone into state ownership it could have gone into to administration but instead the Qataris effectively bailed it out um as a result of uh, amanda staveley introducing the two parties together she is now claiming through the courts that she's owed at least £150 million as an introduction fee. And that's gone to a judiciary resolution. And when that court case is, is finished, in theory, the money she will make from that will then be repaid to St. James's Holding, who, who have given her the money to buy uh, the, the 10% of the football club. Now, two things. Are you deliberately mispronouncing Qatari or have I been pronouncing it wrong for for all my life because I like Qatari. It sounds it sounds great. But secondly, is this a little bit like the Man United situation where whereby essentially they borrowed money against the club they didn't own to buy the club? Um, I, I think in the case of Amanda Staveley, there is an element of that. But then we come to two other investors who have been um, spoken about in the press. Um, what, what, one is called uh, the Rubin Brothers. The Rubin Brothers are the, the second richest people in the UK. Um, it, it's a classic rags to riches story. Um, they've been very successful. They have all of the trappings of what you would expect from a high net worth individual. They've got the yachts. They've got the helicopters. Um, but there's, you know, as we've established before, um, having an investment in a football club, especially a Premier League club, there's only 20 of them. That gives you something to talk mm. about when you're, you're you know, having a chat with your mates in Monaco. Um, you, know, you can invite them to the next home match against Liverpool and so on to come in the director's box. So it looks like they're going to buy 10%. And I think the, the most controversial uh, investor is going to be something called the PIF. This is the uh, investment fund of the uh, of Saudi Arabia uh-huh. and they're going to pick up 80 percent um this this does seem a, a little bit unusual in, in that Saudi Arabia um recently has been focusing on hosting um big sporting events rather than getting involved with buying a club it, it's seen the the mixed response to Manchester City mm. and PSG being acquired by other uh, effective state investment funds from the Middle East but this now appears to be going ahead and clearly from from a Newcastle fans perspective they're getting quite excited about that well that brings me to a note that we've had from guy our producer remember guy the guy who produces Ah, the guy in the the gold gold armchair. Yeah, he's the one. Yeah, the one who apparently uh, Zoom doesn't work as far north as Manchester by all accounts. So it's just um, he sent us a message from Paul, who edits the podcast. Now, 
this has come as news to me, frankly. Paul, I did not know the existence of Paul who edits the podcast. Uh, I wish him nothing but good goodwill, uh, and uh, I'm sure he does a very good job. If I find out that he's being paid and we're not, then it might kick off a little bit. But this message from Paul, um, Paul is a Newcastle fan, and Paul specifically wants to ask you uh, this, this moral maze question, Kieran. And basically, I won't attempt to do the accent, because that's A, it's not fair, and B, Paul might not be from Newcastle. <laughs> um, but Paul says, am I allowed to be happy to see the back of my Cashley, even if it means Saudi state ownership, because it's doing my fucking nutting? Which I think there will be some Newcastle fans, as indeed there are some Man City fans, who do fret a little about you know the the, the politics, shall we say, of being owned by UAE or Saudi. Um, I mean, there are issues. There are um, some critics of Manchester City who, um, in their view, the only reason why uh, Sheikh Mansour um, was involved with the club in the first place is to do with something called sports washing. Uh, And sports washing Mm -hmm. is the, um, the, the aim of improving the reputation of uh, either an organisation, an individual, or in the case of uh, UAE, uh, a Middle Eastern state, through the involvement of sport because everybody loves football. Um, So that's the accusation that could potentially be made in respect of... um, Saudi investment. Uh, you know, clearly there have been issues with with regards to human rights, with regards to um, uh, gay rights, with regards to women's rights in in respect of Saudi, um, and there have been critics. Equally, you can say, well, what about Chelsea with Roman Abramovich in terms of the way that the Russian regime, you've got Fosun at uh, China, uh, sorry, it's a Chinese investment company. Um, it, it's very easy to, to point figures. And what I think this will uh, result in is uh, extended bouts of whataboutery um, between different fans, uh, some of whom will be jealous of the fact that Newcastle mm. have got more money than they have, and some will be taking it up on uh, an ethical and moral moral stance. Mm. Um, Mike, Mike Ashley has been a controversial owner of Newcastle. Um, I, I don't think he is the devil that he is painted. Um, at the same time, he's not been a benevolent owner. And I think that's what's frustrated many um, Newcastle fans going back to uh, the way that Kevin Keegan was treated. Kevin Keegan had to sue the club for constructive dismissal. Um Mike Ashley has run Newcastle very well from a financial point of view. But if you bleed black and white stripes, you know, you're not interested in balance sheets. You want to see success on the pitch. Uh, I think the first eight years of, of Ashley's reign, he spent an average net spend of 750 grand a year. Um, and I think it's a testament to a series of coaches at the club that the club was only in the championship for one of those years. Uh, it's not just football that's used for sports washing as well, as you point. I mean, boxing, for example, Saudi Arabia got an enormous amount of benevolent publicity from the, the Anthony Joshua fight being out there and a massive economic uh, boost as well. So it's a clever strategy on their part, but it, it's, it, it does work. And I think if, if there is a Saudi takeover, the one person it would be bad news for is Steve Bruce, because I can't imagine any Saudi billionaires being completely happy to introduce their other billionaire friends to the manager, Steve Bruce. They'll be wanting a Pep Guardiola talk. Um before we get on to another manager who's caused a bit of controversy, or as you might pronounce it, quantroversy, um, this week, um, north of the border, it, it's um, the decision to basically freeze Scottish football. It, it, it hasn't been accepted graciously by 
many people, has it? So what's the latest of the north of the border Scottish football situation? Um, well, the latest position appears to be that um, Dundee Football Club um, effectively hold the casting vote. Um, now, there has been... Uh, there was a vote last week where clubs had 28 days to submit um, their their views with regards to changes to Scottish football, which which would effectively freeze the bottom divisions. Um, the, the aim was still to um, continue as far as the Premiership was concerned, but it would have allowed the SPFL to to close down the, the Premiership should they have reached a, you know, that we can't go any further decision. Rangers were very unhappy about that. Hearts, who were at the bottom of the Premiership, they were unhappy about that because that meant that they would have been relegated. Um, and clearly there were also issues in terms of playoffs with other clubs. So um, sort of demarcation sort of tended to be along the lines of how does it affect my club? Um, some were being more altruistic than others with regards to that. Um, it, it, it's an awkward position for both the EFL and the clubs themselves. If, uh, if football continues or, or if, if we uh, effectively say we're going to try to resume football in Scotland, then the SPFL, they, according to, to their interpretation of their constitution, they can't get more money to clubs. So therefore, clubs might go out of existence. Rangers have a different interpretation of the constitution. They think that money can be loaned by the SPFL. So therefore, we can sort of, to a certain extent, have your cake and eat it. Money gets to the clubs, but the seasons yet haven't been written off. So that appears to be the the present position. Um, it does change by the day. Um, I, I've been looking at the Scottish press. It is very, very polarised um, in terms of the reactions from individual clubs. A lot of the language which is being used is very incendiary. Um, you know, I, I do think if mm. things are going to be dealt with, deal with them behind closed doors and, and try to keep a lid on all this rather than clubs putting out um, putting out statements on websites and trying to weaponise the fan bases. There's... there's, there's uh, there's petitions on change.org um, to have, you know, we, we met Neil Doncaster a few weeks ago. Well, there's there's something not very pleasant about Neil, which has gone out on that. You know, ultimately, he's a guy trying to do, do a job. And, you know, from our point of view, we found him to be extremely open, far more open than, than we thought we would have been got away with. So I don't think there's anything deliberate or Machiavellian taking place um, at the SPFL, but Fans, because of their individual clubs, will not share that view. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insights, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Now, we're, we're recording this on Wednesday evening uh, to give Paul, who we never knew about, the editor before, uh, a chance to, to um, trim it, tickle it, shall we say, before it goes out tomorrow morning. But on Monday, when we went out, when we recorded, they were still waiting for Dundee's casting vote. Where is it? Uh, are they under so much pressure 
the, the, the whole thing will depend on them, or is, have they missed the deadline? I, I, it seems slightly odd that this vote has, has disappeared into the ether. Well, it is very strange because um, if if you go to the BBC website, there is there is the the voting slip from Dundee Football Club, which says that they voted against the proposals. Mm, it okay. now seems that the SPFL are claiming they didn't receive that. So you would think all that all that Dundee would have to do is to photocopy it again, email yeah. it, and job done. But it now seems that Dundee wants more time before making a decision. Um, how much more time they require is undecided. Um, it, it does also seem strange that an announcement was made on Friday evening when not all of the votes had been received, given that the looking at the voting slip, it said you've got 28 days to, to respond. Mm. But ideally, we want the, the, uh, the responses by 5pm on Friday. Does that imply then, if they've asked for more time, if if their decision was clear this time last week, and now they say they want more time to decide, does that imply? Do you think that there is pressure being put on them by the SPFL? Well, I I think that they there will have been correspondence and communication, not just between Dundee and potentially the SPFL. But remember, the SPFL is 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 effectively it's a skeleton staff. Yeah, we we, we were quite surprised mm, to find course, that it yeah. only employs fourteen people. Um, so it it is a fairly lean organisation. Um, I suspect that there has been communication between Dundee Football Club and other football clubs, uh, and, and Dundee are trying to work out in their own minds what they consider to be the 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 best action. Um, I think Partick Thistle, who are along with Rangers and Hearts, they are against the proposals. This could be because Partick Thistle will be relegated from the Scottish Championship. In their opinion, Dundee's initial submission should be counted as a vote, uh, and therefore mm. that could go to a legal case if if uh, if Dundee do change. Um, it, it, it's a, it's a complete mess at present, uh, and there's no sign of a speedy resolution. Um, and I don't think it's reflecting particularly well on a lot of the people a lot of the factions within Scottish football, you know, it, 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 we know that it's very polarised, especially coming from the, you know, the, the two big Glasgow clubs. Um, what the correct answer to this is, well, it's well beyond our level of knowledge mm. because it, it is is very much a local issue. Now, before we go on to our last uh, subject, uh, a little sign has come up on my uh, Zoom window, uh, which is covering my face, which obviously is very distracting because I like to see. I wonder the reasons I like doing this on Zoom is I can actually see me as well as you while we're doing it. Uh, it says this meeting has been upgraded by the host, which is you. Um, I'm not going to press OK because every time I press OK on anything remotely electronic, it just disappears. So I'm going to leave my face covered and just disconcertingly see yours. And plus all the things that you... you do you put those things behind you to annoy me? Do you those things with Brighton clipped the crest on? Do you put those on just to wind me up and the copy of your book? Um, well, I, I, I do this uh, because I spend a lot of my time on television um, and I, I did get into a lot of trouble uh, in respect of <laughs> one of the books, which is on my bookshelf. Um, some, somebody took great offence to it, which which I find very harsh. I, I, I've got uh, I've got the Viz, one of the Viz annuals, up as uh, as because we're talking about Newcastle United, and as everybody knows, Viz is is based in that fine city. Of course, and and if a man can't have a giant copy of his own book clearly visible over his shoulder while he's talking to the national media. What sort of world have we, have we come into? Now, listen, um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, I think, has disappointed many people, including Manchester United fans, with his comments earlier this week in an interview with Gary Neville, 
uh, and Jeff Shreves, I believe. So it, it wasn't on Norwegian radio, so he can't even claim the usual uh, I was mistranslated type thing. And, and basically, coming across a little bit like the Jacob Rees-Mogg of football, um, talking about the fact that Man United could be in a position with their financial strength to exploit clubs in the transfer market when players when it, the, the window reopens. Basically what he's saying is United are a huge club. They will ride this out quite comfortably and there will be clubs that they can force to sell players at a, a lower fee because they will simply need the money more than Man United will. Um, yeah, I, I think he's had a pretty harsh response. I, I don't think he chose his words particularly well. But right. w- what he's effectively said is that we are going to come out of COVID-19 and it's going to be a buyer's market. So what we've mm. seen I- in respect of the transfer market in recent years, um, it's, it's been more of a, of a seller's market. You've only got to look at Manchester United themselves last summer. Um, you know, they were in the market for Harry Maguire um, and Aaron Wambasaka, and they had to go and pay yeah. full dollar for both of those. And to a certain extent, um, looking at Manchester United and the transfer fees, um, it, it reminds me when I when I went backpacking in Thailand, there, there were three prices um, available for goods and services. Um, there was the local price, there was the tourist mm-hmm. price, and then there was the American tourist price because American tourists just paid silly prices for everything. Now, to a certain extent, mm-hmm. Manchester United are the equivalent of an American tourist. Everybody knows that United is a money-making vehicle um, and therefore um, you know, uh, Leicester charging £80 million for Harry Maguire. And I also understand that they insisted on cash up front for the deal yeah. as well. And, and we know that United have historically been paying a lot of instalments. Um, I think you've you've said to me in the past that, uh, you know, whilst Aaron Wan-Bissaka, very promising player, you were very pleased that you managed to sell him yeah. for £45 million um, and so yeah, on. Yeah. Um, so this might be just uh, Oli Golasongcha saying, well, we're going to try to redress that to a certain extent. Manchester United do have a strong balance sheet. They did have over £100 million sitting in a bank account at the end of December. Uh, now, whilst they have a big wage bill, they've st- still got big amounts of money coming in um, until the pandemic took place. Um, they will be in a strong position coming out of this. And if there are clubs who are in a weak financial position... Um, that will partially be due to the pandemic. There's no doubt about it. But I also feel that, that many clubs have been living beyond their means and, and just relying upon the next paycheck from Sky or the sponsors or someone similar um, without really um, acting in a financially prudent way. Now, you, know, you and I, neither of us go to football to have anything to do with financial prudence, but there are clubs that to a certain extent have been, sh- it's been sticking up two fingers or one finger, depending on, on how you prefer to do it, to um, the, the concept of sustainability, i.e. we're going to operate in a way which is going to ensure the club's still going to be in existence in three years, five years, ten years. Um, the pandemic has changed all of that. And if Manchester United are interested in a player, who they might have had to pay £50 million for in last summer's market, they could pick him up for 30 this summer. Is that exploiting the market? Well, it's it's taking advantage of, of market conditions, just as the opposite was true of Manchester United last summer when they probably had to pay over the odds. I'm going to wait until we finish recording before I ask you which price band you went for in Thailand. I can probably guess. 
Um, but basically what you're saying in your very eloquent defence of Solskjaer there is that what he says makes sound business and economic sense, but it probably wasn't the best time for him to say it in, in public. Yes, yes. I mean, we know that this is going to take place. And I think we've already had this conversation yeah. in earlier pods uh, you know, since the pandemic had changed the face of, of society. There's going to be huge impacts upon prices of property, of mm. me- of cars, secondhand cars, of many other assets, because we're going to have 4 million people unemployed. That's, sim- yeah, yeah, that's yeah, going to yeah. have a... a, a and, and crazy um and, and we're talking about individuals futures their lives their their families and so on um football markets it, it, it's just a distraction it's just a bubble that, that we've got into i don't think manchester united are doing anything wrong Oli Golasongsha ultimately he's norwegian he's got brilliant english but even so mm. when you are speaking in in what is not your natural language you sometimes you you do choose your words clumsily and i think if he's guilty of anything he's guilty of just a poor choice of words yeah i see i've spoken to gary neville on several occasions and an element of panic does creep in you basically you just want to get out there as quickly as possible. You say the first thing that comes into your head. Um, it's disappointing, though. I think it's, it's strange, isn't it, how you perceive clubs and individuals? Because you, you'd like to hope, as as we did with the Liverpool statement about the furloughing last week, you'd like to hope that some clubs do have a certain dignity about them. They, it, historically, they do, and, and I think both Man United and, and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer are a club and an individual that you're, you're even more disappointed. And if you heard Mike Ashley say it, for example, you'd be disappointed for Matt, for Newcastle fans, but you wouldn't be surprised. So I think I think there's an element of that. It, just to, to close in, it, it, your instinct, I think I already know the answer to this, is you, you think this is going to clearly rein in the stupid transfer fees that we were seeing in the last two years Anyway, so it's it's not even it's just all across the board. Clubs simply won't be able to spend the amount of money that they used to on salaries and transfer fees. Well, I think they're locked into salaries because they're in the Premier League. You've signed right. four, five year, six year contracts. Um, transfer fees are very much of the moment. So all clubs will have had less money coming in. It doesn't matter whether you're Barcelona or Barnet. Um, and and therefore, if you've got less money coming in, you've got less money to spend. Um, yeah, we, and, and I agree with you entirely. Um, Manchester United, I think, have, have come out of the, the the issues in respect of the pandemic pretty well because they have done the right thing on many an occasion uh, in terms of you know, refunds to season ticket holders, in terms of not furloughing staff and so on. Um, mm. Liverpool have come to the right conclusion very quickly. I think you've only got to compare uh, Liverpool's comments when they reversed the furlough to those of Spurs and and Spurs was clearly through gritted teeth um you know mm. it was we're going to have to we have to go and make uh, cost savings elsewhere as a result of this uh, there was there was a clear irritation um from the words coming out of of the club itself um because they thought Here's an opportunity to save money. Let's save money. Um, I'm, I'm presently doing a valuation of every single club in the Premier League. And um, Spurs are, I think the Spurs valuation will surprise a few people because if you look at that constant trade-off between sporting success and financial success, I think these numbers will show where, where, Spurs, uh, where, where Spurs' priorities lie. Well, let's save that conversation for next Thursday then, um, because I my curiosity about Thailand is getting the better of me. 
and I need to get Ali in to make sure I do stop recording before we talk about it. The Price of Football is Adapted Production. Next time you hear from us will be Monday when it's our special questions pod. And if you do have questions for us, email us on questions at priceoffootball.com. And as we learned from the response to the question about red cards in the Sunday League football last week, it doesn't matter how low we go, we get as much of a response in social media about a question about a Sunday League team, just asking for a friend, as we do about a Man United or Liverpool. Um, so do get in touch with us. Um, keep yourself safe. And hopefully we'll talk to you next week. Have a good weekend. Bye bye everybody. See you there, Kieran. The price of football. Bye bye. I'm for the